Good morning, church. So great to be together again. My name is Tyler, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Westview. And we just want to say a special welcome uh, to all of you who are watching this across all of our channels. Uh, if Westview is your home church, we're so thankful that you continue to gather uh, to have church at home uh, over the past few months. But if Westview isn't your home church and you've somehow connected with us online through friends or family, we are so glad that you have done so. And we'd love to be able to connect with you. And the best way really to be able to do that is by sending me an email. It's tyler at westviewbaptistchurch.ca. You're also welcome to go onto our website to take a look at all the things that are still happening here at our church with our ministries. And we'd love to be able to, to get to know you more. And so please feel free uh, to do that. This morning, we reached the end of our series in 1 John at the beginning, if you can remember that far back, I asked the question I wanted to kind of personally wrestle with and, and find answers to as we journeyed through this letter. And I asked the question, what should the church look like? And I was clear that I was throwing this definition of church around having kind of two understandings, two definitions somewhat interchangeably, that, that this, where I am standing this morning, is the church, it's a church building, but also that we are the church. And like I said six weeks ago, I say again this morning, in as much as I may wonder what church as it looked like in this space going forward, I'm even more curious what, what we will look like as the church in these days to come. As I was typing out this message on Wednesday morning, all of a sudden this image appeared on my phone. My wife was airdropping me it from upstairs, and it was a quote. It was a quote from one of my favorite authors, a fellow by the name of Francis Chan. Maybe you've heard of him. And the quote that came into my phone was this, God called us to be the church, not just to gather in a room and listen to a sermon. And how fitting a quote as we are in this time where we simply cannot gather here safely at the moment, and yet we are absolutely still called, you and I, to be the church. The letter of 1 John certainly has a few central themes to it that, that's going to help us to live this out, I think, to, to put them into practice, to take them to heart in our journey of faith. And so this morning, as we come to chapter 5, again, these themes emerge one final time. So I invite you, where you are this morning or this afternoon or wherever you are, whenever you're watching this, to pray with me. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for this time together. I thank you that we have the opportunity to hear from you wherever we are. And so I pray, Lord, as we enter into this time together, that you would speak to us, that we would hear from you uniquely for our own lives, where we are at in our journey of faith, even this very moment. Thank you that you are a God that speaks. Help us to listen. Help us to understand and help us to live this out. And I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I invite you, if you've got your Bibles at home, uh, you're always welcome to grab them to follow along with me as we go through parts of chapter 5 this morning. 
Uh, as well, you'll notice on our website that there is a spot for sermon notes on the sermon page for today. And you're always welcome to grab those as well if that helps you uh, to kind of navigate through uh, the lesson, the sermon, the message this morning. But let me read this morning, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Our first point this morning, as we look further, is carrying out his commands. I want to look at that a little bit more. Maybe let me ask you a question to help us. Do you remember as a kid ever pestering your parents? Pestering them into figuring out the answer to something, you know, like something important as to like, why shouldn't I play in the streets? No? Uh, just just me? Oh, that's kind of weird. But either way, you'd, you'd pester your parents and you'd ask them these questions, you know, why? 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 And you'd ask them ad nauseum. And you could literally see the blood boiling as they begin to reach a whole new level of impatience with you. To the point where they'd yell at you and just say, because I said so. Now, is that a terrible answer? Yes. But is it a fair answer? Well, technically, yes. I mean, they are adults after all. They are parents. They are the parents. They are your parents. And maybe it's because I've been a parent now for the better part of a decade that I've begun to realize a few things that my own parents desperately tried to teach me. As kids, if you're watching, here's a little tip for you. Parents ask you to do or not to do things because they love you. So how do we react? How do we react when God asks us to do certain things. Like in the case of our message this morning, to obey his commands. And I get that this word obey comes perhaps with some baggage for you, as it does perhaps for many of us, because each one of us has contexts that are very different around this subject. Our perspective on, on what it means to obey can, can be very different than the next person, even our spouse for that matter. The Bible speaks a great deal on the subject of obedience and honor in the context of the family unit. Most famously from Exodus 20, verse 12, where it says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And this same verse is echoed again in Deuteronomy 5, 16, then by Christ himself in Matthew 5, 14, Matthew 19, 19, throughout the other Gospels, and then even by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, 2. Maybe for you, your childhood was one where fear was that primary motivator for obedience and honor. Maybe for you, it was hard to obey your parents because of the choices they themselves made. And I get that. Parents aren't perfect. So this is not always an easy thing for any one of us as parents to practice. So I ask the question again, how do we react when God asks us to do certain things? 
like in the case of our text this morning, to obey his commands. Well, according to our passage this morning, this is how we are to react. Look at verse 3 again. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. You see, according to John, this is simple. But as we know from looking at these texts, looking through the letter of 1 John over the past few weeks, John often writes things that seem to be pretty simple on the surface, but are a bit more nuanced than that when you come to know them a little bit deeper. You see, for John, love of God means keeping or, or obeying the commands, God's commands. But he doesn't finish his sentence there. He ensures that his audience and us, for that matter, understand one more critical piece of information. And that's this, that his commands are not burdensome. For anyone who understands the Old Testament law system, there were 613 laws known as the mitzvot. There are 248 positive commandments, the, the do's, and there were 365 negative commandments, the, the do nots, one apparently for every day of the year. It would be a miracle for anyone to really fully obey each of these. American journalist for Esquire magazine, A.J. Jacobs, made these 613 laws famous in his book titled A Year of Living Biblically, where he attempted to follow to the very best of his ability all of these laws for an entire year. He vowed to follow the Ten Commandments. He vowed to be fruitful and multiply. He even had twins during the course of this whole experience. He vowed to, to love his neighbor, but also to obey the hundreds of, of less kind of publicized laws and rules, to, obey, to avoid wearing clothes made of mixed fibers, so no cotton poly blends, he says, to play a ten-string harp, to stone adulterers. That one, he said, was a little bit of a challenge, as you can imagine. Jacob shared his experiences in a TED Talk he did a little while after his book was released and said that it was a very interesting experience having to obey these laws down to kind of the nth degree. And I hear what he's saying. I mean, 613 laws would be a darn near impossible task for anyone outside of maybe Jesus himself. So fast forward to the latter part of the Old Testament, and along comes the prophet Micah. And Micah takes these laws and essentially takes all of this and kind of distills it down into three. And so we read in Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So Micah takes 613, condenses it down to three, and then here in our text this morning, it gets down to two. Love God and love others. When it's put like that, do we really feel that his commands are burdensome? I mean, as much as I want to remind us that this year of living biblically isn't a, a Christian book in that sense, Jacob makes some startling revelations as he expands upon the entire experience of living biblically for a year. There is, however, a great benefit to understanding the, the sacredness of rituals, he says, 
things like keeping the Sabbath, ensuring that we take proactively this idea of rest. That shifting the focus away from ourselves on our own desires and ensuring that we care for others more deeply makes us better people, if not nothing else. And when I look at the commands of scriptures, of the scripture, what I remember in all of it is not what all the laws are, but rather who the lawgiver is. It's God. And you see, God has a father's heart for his children. He loves them and desires ultimately what is good for them to experience blessing. And again, why? Well, that brings us to our second point this morning. It's so that we may have life in Christ. Let's pick it up again in verse 6 to verse 12. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, the first few verses of this portion of our text are, are a little bit perplexing, to say the least, of John's writing. And there's a lot of dialogue that has been written on this by a number of scholars. And it's not my intent this morning to spend an awful lot of time looking closely at verse 6 to 8. Uh, there are some great commentaries on this that I could also recommend but I will say what I feel sums up that portion of our text this morning. One commentary writer said it this way, when we read of the blood and water, it attempts to sum up the totality of Jesus' incarnational ministry here on earth. Jesus' baptism, the water, and his crucifixion, the blood, frames his ministry in a sense. He was declared son of God in the River Jordan in John 1.34, and he obtained even more power and authority through his glorification at Golgotha, we read in John 19. It is John's desire for his hearers to come to recognize life through Christ. From his declaration of being the incarnate Son of God to proving his divinity through his death, burial, and resurrection. That Jesus was the only one who could truly say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's where in this second part of this portion of our text this morning, we see that there are two types of life that John is referring to. The first one is life to the full. While not actually the first thing we read, we pick up this theme in here of, of life to the full. We know that this isn't a new theme for John. John himself writes this in, in John 10.10 10, where he says that I, Jesus, have come so that they may have life and life to the full. We see also in verse 12, we read, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
So life here is the Greek word zoe, almost entirely translated as life in a, a literal sense of being alive. Those who have Christ have life. In Christ, we have the sum and the substance of that life. When we sing songs like Christ is enough, we aren't just giving lip service to these statements, but rather we're declaring the truth that that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is sufficient. We acknowledge in our lives that, that the trappings of this world cannot satisfy us. That which brought us joy in one moment will ultimately not last. And what John ensures is of the utmost importance in his descriptions of this life that in Christ we have eternal life. The second point of our text in this area. And so we read in verse 11, and this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Life here, again, is this Greek word zoe, is preceded by the adjective Ionios, to ensure that what is being understood here is that this is talking about eternal life. When I came to Christ in 1996, one of the biggest worship bands around at the time uh, was this band called Delirious out of the UK. They toured extensively, and I had the privilege on a number of occasions to see them perform live back home in Vancouver. And one of the songs that I've never forgotten, one of the songs that I've always remembered from all of their albums was a song called The Message of the Cross. And I really think it applies well and helps us to understand what John is trying to convey to us this morning. So I'm not going to sing it. I promise you I won't do that to you, but let me read it for you this morning. This is the message of the cross, that we can be free, to live in the victory and turn from our sin My precious Lord Jesus, with sinners you died, for there you revealed your love and you laid down your life. This is the message of the cross that we can be free to lay all our burdens here at the foot of the tree. The cross was the shame of the world, but the glory of God. Oh, for Jesus, you conquered sin and you gave us new life. I don't know about you, but maybe it seems like we've journeyed through this letter of 1 John, and there hasn't been really too much in regards of, of kind of moral issues or, or any sort of deep theology that has really been addressed in our text. Well, I think you'd be safe to say that that's not far from the truth. 1 John really is a simple book. But if you recall what I said way back in our first week, there is great substance in its simplicity. And what John wanted to make clear to his hearers, it applies to us as well, that in Christ there is eternal life. And that apart from him, there is only eternal separation from God. And he made this clear in his gospel too. In John 17, 3, we read, Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And most famously, a verse that perhaps you've heard of before, coming out of John's Gospel in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That moment for me at camp, when I was 16 years old, as we stood there on that last evening, I knew in the very soul of my being that I was not complete. That I was living a lie, that I was caught in sin, that that something was missing, that I could not live this life in the same way going forward as I had up until that point. I knew that there was no way to save myself from the sin that I was caught in and that I needed a savior. And I remember that moment as if it was yesterday. And I look back upon that moment often and I recognize that 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 moment is one of those experiences, well, it's where I recognized I needed to hear the good news of the gospel. And it reminds me in my life now, in this moment that we are in, that we all need the gospel. That some of us need to hear it again for the hundredth time, and some of us need to hear it for the first time. That when we choose Christ, when we give our lives to him, when we confess our sin and accept his forgiveness, we receive in that moment eternal life. Truly life to its fullest. And John brings his letter to a close here in verses 13 to 21. And that takes us uh, to our final point in our sermon, to ask and to receive. So let's pick it up in verse 13 to 15 again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. John concludes his letter by reinforcing these themes again that he's developed over the course of these previous chapters Again, ensuring that he is crystal clear that the intent of his letter is all about proclaiming the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ. His heart is to make strong the heart of his followers, that they would have confidence to hold on to the faith that they have declared. And from this final point in our text this morning, they are confident in their approach of God through prayer. You see, what's unique is you and I, we can talk to God. We can speak to him in prayer. We have direct access to the Father. There's no priest we have to visit. There's no spiritual leader who who needs to speak on our behalf. There's, There's no intermediary in that sense. And this is what sets Christianity apart from any other system of belief. That God is not distant nor is he unapproachable. Instead, he's a loving father who who gives good gifts to his children who ask, as it says in Matthew 7, 11. The only item of clarity that John wants his hearers to not miss is that this isn't just carte blanche. We don't simply demand from God a pony and expect a horse to fall from the sky. John is clear in verse 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If we ask according to his will, he hears us. Now, this is a statement that has brought with it as well great misunderstanding and anguish for centuries as scholars have sought to, to make sense of this, to understand what this truly looks like. But for John, successful prayer must be wed to a life that glorifies God, that conforms to God's desires and that pleases him. In addition here, he proclaims that it must be in conformity with God's will. One commentary writer put it this way, Thus the wonder of prayer consists not in bringing God's will down to us, but in lifting our will up to him. I think John in his gospel uh, in John 15, 7, helps to illustrate this point by this. He says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, for John, the key the key to unlocking the power of prayer is spiritual intimacy. It's this oneness with God. It's this abiding in him, this language he uses all throughout John 15. And so we began this morning asking one big question. And the question is this, what should the church look like? How should church, here as a building, but also us as the church, what should we look like going forward? And through these six weeks, I hope that it has been made a little bit more clear for you. That this series in 1 John has helped you to recognize what it means to live a life of faith. What it looks to live out a life of prayer. How to live in the confidence of what God has promised to those who believe in him eternal life. To be a people who walk in the light and not in darkness. That these are the major themes that John writes to us, to his audience in this letter. And for you and I, what we do with these going forward will speak greatly to the impact that Christ has made and continues to make in our lives. Not just on Sunday. Not just if we were still able to gather here in this building. But how Christ impacts your life. My life. In, in the everyday stuff of life, each and every day of the week, as John declared in the very beginning of his letter, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So again this morning, church, what will we choose? Light or darkness? There's really no third option here. And my prayer is for you, for all of us, is that we will choose Christ. That we will choose to walk in the light as he 
is in the light. That we will experience the beauty of fellowship with one another as the church. That we will be the church in this season. And that we will come to know the price that Jesus paid on the cross for our sin as he took our place to die the death we should have died so that we can now live the life we could never live. That you and I walk in the light. That we are called church to be the church. And in these days forward, I pray that you will understand that, that that will bring you joy and excitement, and that you will experience that in incredible ways over the course of these summer months. That we will be the church in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in this country. That we will be the light. That we will shine like a city on a hill. That we will be the church. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I do thank you for who you are and for what you have done. That in you there is eternal life. And for those who call on the name of Jesus, who experience the joy of your salvation, I pray now that as we go into this week, as we connect with our neighbors, as we live life on mission, that we will walk in the light, that we will shine for you, Jesus. And I thank you for this series that we have been able to go through over the course of these last six weeks. I pray that we will continue to put into practice all that we have learned. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.